Okay, hello everyone, and welcome to the Chabura. Today we have part three of our exciting series where our Talmidim take over. Last week we had the privilege of hearing from Ben Rothstein, who took us through a correspondence between Rav Kook and Rav Yichiyakafach regarding the authenticity of Kabbalah. Today we have the privilege of hearing from our dear Talmid, Avner Yeshurun, who will be sharing on appreciating Agadah, the Andalusian tradition, and Rav Kook's Ein Ayah, about our speaker. Avner Yeshurun was born in Israel and grew up on the Caribbean island of Curacao, moving to Miami in 2011. After studying at the Hebron Yeshiva in Jerusalem, he attended the University of Miami, receiving his BSBA in finance, along with minor degrees in financial technology, accounting, and art history this past spring. I'll just add that he did that with full honors. Uh, his interests include building his Judaic research library, studying and translating notable works in the field of Jewish studies, meeting with local Chabura members, and spending family time exploring the beautiful city of Miami. He and his wife, Elisheba, live in Miami Beach with their son, Ariel Moshe. Uh, personally, it is an honor to be able to introduce my dear friend, Avner, um, and I also wanted to take this moment to thank Avner on behalf of the Chabura for all the hard work he puts in uh, for us behind the scenes and being really the driving force uh, behind our publishing house. Um, in Chabura News, uh, this Monday, we will be having our penultimate class of the year, where we will we'll be having uh, Rosh Bet Midrash, Rabbi Joseph Dweck, join us for a question-answer session. So make sure to mark that in your diaries and also take advantage of the opportunity by sending in your questions to be answered by Rabbi Dweck. Uh, the deadline to send in questions is this Friday, so make sure to do that, and that can be done on our website at thechabura.com slash AMA. Uh, with that said, thank you so much everyone for, for being here and for all the people who are going to be listening afterwards. And thank you so much, Avner. It's a privilege to have you with us on the floor of yours. Thank you, Ohad. Um, it's an honor to be introduced by you. Um, for all of you who are listening, um, me and Ohad, we live in the same city. We live 15 minutes away from each other, so we spend a lot of time together. And uh, it's been very enriching to know you. So let's begin. Um, I called this class Appreciating Agadah because sometimes, unfortunately, Agadah is viewed as the uh, aspect of the Talmud or the Midrash that is uh, supposed to be taken a little with less weight than the halachic side of things. And uh, unfortunately, if someone has that view, they miss out on a lot of very important things that they can learn. Um, I'm going to start with a brief introduction. I, I made this source sheet more for myself than for uh, the people listening, just so that I could keep my thoughts organized. Um, but feel free to follow along. And at any time, if there's a question, please just interrupt. And uh, I will try to answer you. I'm not an expert in any of these things. It's just these are my observations. This, this is my thought research. I'm an amateur. I don't have any qualifications in this area. So please um, don't expect me to be able to answer everything, but please ask. Um, if we look at the era of the Talmud, we can roughly divide the thought of the Talmud into two areas. Um, that would be halakha, which is practical, hands-on, what are you supposed to do uh, in terms of the mitzvot and in terms of the mitzvot de Rabbanan. And you also have agada, which comprises everything else. Um, and it includes a vast array of different types of subjects. So you have uh, ethical and moral statements from the Chachamim, you have story, you have fable, you have myth, you have anecdotes. Um, 
And roughly one third of the Talmud Bavli is Agadah, and one fifth of the Talmud Yerushalmi is Agadah. And of course, we have the Midrashim, the various Midrashim, which are comprised almost entirely out of Agadah. So it's a very important area. Um, the name I gave it here is Lore. Uh, it was the best English word I could think of for it, although it's not perfect. So if someone wants to really familiarize themselves with it, they have to pick and choose a few different uh, areas of the Agadah and it will all come together for them. There have been a lot of approaches to Agadah in the past. And in the spirit of the Chabura and the guiding spirit of the Chabura being the philosophy of the Rambam Maimonides, um, I wanted to open with his take and his uh, statements on how we're supposed to view these Agadot, or rather, we're really going to see how you're, how you're not supposed to view them from uh, his comments here. In his commentary to the Mishnah in Sanhedrin, he goes through a number of different uh, um, discussions about the proper way to approach these things, and he divides the understandings into a few different camps and when it comes to the camp that takes these agadot at face value and literally um, without proper context or depth or symbol he 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 seems to be unable to contain himself any longer and he gets uh and you know you know how the rambam writes he writes in one of his letters that sometimes his pen gets the better of him and he he can't hold back and he he really uh, takes this group of people to task for understanding the Agadot in this way. So we're going to read what he says. He says, Vizuakat, this group of people, which we just explained how, uh, how they view these Agadot, These people of poor knowledge, we must be very pained by their foolishness. These individuals, unfortunately, they think that what they're doing is glorifying the Talmudic Chachamim and raising them to lofty heights, um, while in fact they are denigrating them. Uh, he says in, in the worst denigration possible, and they don't understand what they're doing. He says, he, he uh, an expression of an oath, this group is destroying the splendor of the Torah and are darkening its light and are displaying it and portraying it as the opposite of what the Torah is supposed to be. Uh, these very harsh words. And why does he say that they're doing the opposite? He's not just uh, using a figure of speech. He, he brings a pasuk uh, in a homiletical way. We have a verse that says, This is talking about the Gentile nations. When the Jewish people, when the nation of Israel are constituted properly and are following their laws properly, the Gentile nations will view the nation of Israel as a model nation. And they will say, This great nation is an understanding and a wise nation. And 
says Maimonides, this group will give their take on what the Chachamim are saying. And when the outsiders, the Gentiles hear this, they will say, So he inverts each adjective in the verse and he says that the Gentile nations will say that we are a foolish and a vile nation and a small nation. So he clearly has a different approach than those people and he's He's very, uh, very harsh with them. Now, Maimonides' plan, and he tells this to us in a few different places, was in fact to write a comprehensive perush on all the Agadot, at least in the Talmud Bavli. I wouldn't be surprised if he had carried out this, this plan of his, if he would have also written on the Yerushalmi, because we know that he relies heavily on the Yerushalmi and his halachic works. Um but he did, he did not get around to it. And for a variety of reasons, he felt that certain things were more important and he was ill. So he never actually wrote this book. His son wrote not an entire book. He wanted to also complete his father's work, but he also wasn't able to. But he did write a, a small chapter in his book, the Hamaspikle of Hashem, in which he gives a theoretical framework for understanding the Agadot. He breaks the groupings of the Agadot down into a few different categories and subcategories, and he brings examples, and he says, I hope that if you read this and understand it, you will be able to apply this method and this theory to any of the Agadot that you come across. And uh, on a personal note, I had the real privilege of working with a fellow Kabula member and a dear friend of mine, Rabbi Berdugo, on publishing this chapter as a book. Rabbi Berdugo did a lot of research into the proper text and in a, into a good translation and figuring out the historical context of these things. And with a very robust introduction, the Chaburah was able to release this book through Dot Press as a, uh, as a book in and of itself. And I would highly recommend it. And it was a real, uh, a real honor to work on it. And here in the source sheet, I brought you his, what I think would be a good characterization of his mission statement. So he says this in section one of the chapter. He says, I'm going to awaken your heart and your thoughts about these things. And if someone reads the, uh, reads the treatise, the chapter, they get a very good understanding of uh, what exactly he's trying to do. And he hopes that because of this, his hope is that you will come to refrain from uh, ridiculing the Chachamim because the alternative when uh, the science or the facts on the ground prove otherwise and you're taking a statement of them literally, you cannot help but to say that these individuals were foolish. He also says that you will be saved from thinking that every individual who is considered a righteous individual can have miracles done for them in the same way that the Nevi'im, that we hear the Nevi'im had. Um, and his example, I didn't bring it here, is the splitting of the, of the Yamsuf or of the Yarden. 
Someone might think it's comparable to the stories in the Talmud of the splitting of, of various rivers for certain Tanaim and Amoraim. And in his view, that is not a correct view. Again, we haven't really touched on what his view is, but this is not his view. That's the background. The background we can summarize as being one of not taking the Agadot literally. You run into too many problems with it. And as we're going to see, frankly, it becomes much more enriching to understand the symbolic value of these Agadot instead of taking them as simple stories. Fast forward to the year, uh, the, the 14th century, excuse me, the 15th century, a man by the name of Yaakov ben Shlomo ibn Chaviv, he makes a compilation of all the Agadot in the Talmud. He calls it the Ein Yaakov, the spring of Jacob, and it is a very popular work even today. Sometimes if a person wants to get a, a understanding of just the Agadic aspect of the Talmud, they will go into the Ein Yaakov and they're going to see a lot of commentaries that aren't classically referenced in the halachic side of the Talmud. And many commentaries have been written on it, very important commentaries as well. One of these commentaries, and I believe it is my favorite one that I've come across, not that I have extensively researched it, but it is the Ein Ayah. Enaya is a book by Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook. He started it when he was 18 years old, and he finished it um, throughout his entire life. His plan as well was to write a, a commentary on all of the Agadah that he could get his hands on in the Talmud, and he managed to write only on a few Masechtot, um, I'm not trying to minimize his accomplishment. I'm trying to um, to explain how when you take this on as a task, it leads you down many rabbit holes that uh, it's uh, it's better to do a few right than to try to get everything. Um, his approach is a, is a really interesting approach. He tries to psychologize a lot of the statements in the Talmud. So he tries to make them about, he's a humanist if, if, when it comes down to it. He tries to make it about the person and what certain actions or certain stories will do for a person. He uses a lot of symbol and metaphor. He views a lot of the statements as symbolic and metaphoric, sometimes to the point that if you step back and you think about what he has done to the statement of the rabbis, it's quite a radical thing. And his language is beautiful as well. It's very poetic. He, he weaves in a lot of uh, verses from the Tanakh and from the Mishnah. Um, it's it's um, it's a hallmark usually of the Sephardic Chachamim, but Rav Kook uh, seems to have adopted it as well. It's it a beautiful it's a beautiful writing. Sometimes it makes for a difficult read because if you don't recognize that he's uh, referencing a verse, you get confused. And, and um, his definition about what the essence of Agadah is, is is very interesting, and we can see that it's in line with uh, with this. Uh, older tradition, the, the Andalusian tradition, uh, in his Akdama. He says, Like we said, he references verses. So he says that the Agadot are an Ozawa. They are a, a light which is sown. It is a holy seed which carries the fruits of truth and peace. 
נטוע על תלמי לב הנפשות הנותנות שכמן לסבול עולה של תורה וחוכמה. This seed that the Agada plants in a symbolic way is planted in the, in the furrows of the heart of those individuals who give over their shoulders to accept the weight of Torah and wisdom. People who want to, who, who want to view deep things and to internalize deep things will see a lot in the Agadah. And he says, These Agadot were not merely stated for their details. They're not just a story in a temporal place. These are starting points, he says. The Agadot are starting points for many other ideas that can be wrapped into them when you think about it from a sensible place. He says, it's not only about the details. His view of what the Agadot are coming to do is, is different than what he views the halachic side of things. Whereas the halachic side of things is to explain action, and yes, we can get into a discussion for, in a different time about what this action does for you, but he says that Agadot are directly there to be a psychological wellspring for our souls. Essentially, to give us meaning in life. These are uh, shortcuts to meaning. And the reason that they're shortcuts, as, as one will know if they've, if they've uh, read things like Mishlei or Kohelet, is that when something deep is taken and wrapped into a small bundle, and the person realizes how deep it is, it becomes all the more beautiful than someone who just lectures to you about uh, how the human mind works. He says, They're all interrelated, these statements. When you read a, a um, Agadah, you're not supposed to view it in a vacuum. It's important to understand it, but it's also important to understand all of the different starting points it's opening up for you to interpret if you're doing it in the right way. Heaps upon heaps of intellectual expansion can come out of these stories. And this all seems a little abstract now, I understand, but when we get into an example of his, it'll make a little bit more sense. He says, The end result of a person who really immerses themselves in, a, in, in the pursuit of the truth of the Agadot, it will give them strength, strength for their soul. So these are fundamentals. That's the way that he views them. So now that we got the understanding of, of how Rav Kook sees the Agadot, and we understand that it's very much in line with the Andalusian tradition, um, we're going to go through two examples. Um, the first example is, is quite long, but it's a simple idea, so uh, bear with me. 
both of these are from the same daf in the Talmud. I happen to be learning this uh, daf right now. I decided, you know, why should I crack my skull open wider than I have to? I'll just take from what I'm studying right now. Um, and it has to do with dreams. This whole daf has to do with dreams. It's the, the last chapter of the Masechet Brachot, Perek Avoe, and there, it's a fascinating uh, chapter. It's a chapter that if you are not uh, exposed to the, the depth of the Agadot, you may brush off as, you know, just the uh, connector between the eighth chapter of Brachot and the first chapter of Masechet Shabbat, because some of these things are very obscure. So Gemara says, If there was a person who fell ill, he should not inform anyone of his illness on the first day of his illness. So that his mazal, so that his good fortune will not turn bad. And from there on, he can uh, reveal it to, to other people. Now, just as a side here, one of the things that Rabbeinu Avram ben Arambam does touch upon in his work is that despite the Chachamim having a monopoly on Torah wisdom, in that we must follow the wisdom of the Chachamim when it comes to Torah, they do not have that same monopoly, and they themselves admit it in other areas. There are many statements in the Talmud where a certain rabbi retracted. He goes through a discussion between the Chachamim of Chachamei uh, Israel and Chachamei Umot HaOlam about uh, various theories about how the, how the world works. And then Rabbeinu Avraham says, we do not need to accept uh, their scientific statements or their medicinal statements in light of new evidence, which does not prove it correct. So one might look at this line that we just read in the Gemara and say, you know, perhaps this is something that is outdated and we don't need to accept it. It's after all, it's not halachic. So perhaps we just can uh, leave it be. If we look at what, this is the beauty of what Rav Kook does. He doesn't... uh, he doesn't look for ways to dismiss the words of the Chachamim just because he can. Uh, he tries, again, to make it a, a psychological experience and a psychological endeavor. So on this one line, he has a, a, a very long paragraph, and he discusses what it means. I think, I think once we get into this, you'll quickly understand what his idea is, and then we'll go through it, and, and it'll become more and more beautiful. So he says, Achat mitchunot nefesh hayekarot one of the beautiful characteristics of an individual, of a person, is that they want to help themselves. And it's a desire that every person has to, to whatever degree, to assist themselves in whatever they're going through. Due diligence. Any person who has a healthy psyche, Every person who is a healthy person recognizes when they have received something that they have not earned or participated in. He, he says, it means a bread of shame. The, the specific phrase is used a lot in, uh, 
in Rabbi Yosef Karo's Magid Meisharim. It's a it's a Kabbalistic term in in, uh, in that context, but here it just means bread that you are eating which you have not earned, bread of shame, and you recognize that when you are done a favor that you have not participated in uh, achieving for yourself, it does not feel good. You feel um, you feel babied when you're not a child. This character trait of self-help, assisting yourself, watching out for yourself, caring for yourself, was put into every person. It's how we developed as individuals so that we could use it to the right extent. A person needs to strengthen themselves with their own strength without relying on others. And he's going, he's going to qualify this, of course. Whether it is mundane or spiritual matters, if he acts in such a way, he will be ready to make every one of his actions a little more perfect, a little better. He will be that much closer to Shlemut. So he's talking about the importance of uh, being competent and self-reliant and able to take care of yourself. Alken, he says, when a person is ill, when you're ill, your immediate reaction is, I can't do anything for myself. I'm sure we've all had this experience. We all get a fever and suddenly we're stuck to the couch. We can't, we can't get up. We need someone else to help us. That's the first impulse when we're feeling ill. Whether it's his physical strength or if it's his, his own his prayer, we have a concept that's earlier in Masechet Brachot, I think it's on the around Daf uh, a captive cannot free himself. So when you're captive, when you're a captive of your own illness, you need others, your impulse is to require others to free you. And to an extent that's okay, but not all the time. The character trait of not relying too heavily on others needs to always be there. It needs to be apparent in all of your actions. In this instance, the way that that should manifest is that you do not immediately turn to another person for help if, if you are still able to help yourself. It's a, it's, a, uh, it's a psychological statement. Obviously, no one is expecting you to go to work and to take the kids to school and to make breakfast, lunch, and dinner and to, do, and to clean the house when you're ill. But at the very least, you should not immediately upon becoming ill collapse onto, onto your bed and say, I can't do anything for myself. Everybody needs to help me. He should value his, he should value himself. 
וכבודו האנושי של התאמצות לעצמו מבלי צפות לעזרת אחרים, היא תסגבה וחי לבטוח אך בהשם לבדו מעוזו בעת צרה. There's another verse, מעוזו בעת צרה. It's based on the verse in תהילים. Your uh, self-worth should be there in a way that you do not immediately deny yourself your own health. וההכנה המהירה ליתן מקום לעזרת הבריות בין בדברים גשמיים ואפילו בדברים מוכניים כעזרת התפילה והשתתפות בצערו, שמקיל על כל פנים את צרת הנפש הפנימית של היחיד, היא אמנם מביאה רפיון פנימי וכישלון. Yes, it's going to help you to be assisted by others in many ways. However, there's a, there's a drawback to this, and that is that it weakens your self-worth and your psyche. It weakens your view of yourself as a competent person who can care for themselves. Now, this all sounds very harsh at this point, right? You have a person who's sick and he's saying up to this point, don't rely on anybody to take care of you or to help you. You should refuse them, right? But he's going to go another, uh, he's going to go another step and he's going to complete his idea and you're going to see how it, uh, it all, it fills itself out. בהיותה מחלשת את כוח הכבוד הנפשי שהוכן למען טובת האדם וגבורתו הנפשית הנחוצה לו לטובתו החומרית והרוחנית. In Rav Cook's view, a person's well-being in terms of their material existence and in their spiritual existence is directly tied to their כבוד האנושי, to their self-respect and their self-worth. And if a person immediately upon encountering a a difficult situation such as an illness immediately disposes of their self-worth and states that they're unable to in any form assist themselves that eventually can lead them down a path where they're they do not they, they don't respect themselves enough to take care of themselves in any way spiritually or materially So that's why the Gemara says, that's the point of saying that the first day that you're ill, you do not immediately parade that fact to everyone. From here on, from if you're sick for more than a day, you should tell people. And it's not just that you can, it's you should. It is another theme that you're, that you're going to see if you study the Enaya, and I'm sure the other works of Rav Kook, even though I'm not as familiar with them. It's a very balanced thing. He's always saying, in its proper measure. Yes, so while self-reliance is, is a proper thing to do, it, it requires proper measure. So that a person can help themselves. And he can instantiate in reality whatever he's able to do for himself. When the affliction becomes too great to bear, the very fact that we have such a thing which is known as society and friendship is it is there in large part for individuals to rely on 
when they can't rely on themselves entirely. Humans are social beings, right? You can see the the uh, the psychological discussion that is hidden underneath all of this. Rav Cook is saying you can't handle everything on your own. You can't you can't take the first part of the statement that you should not rely on other people's assistance and assume that it is a blanket statement. Otherwise, what is the second part? Why should you tell people after that? Well, that's the very purpose of society. Society is there to assist you and to help you and to care for you when you're unable to. And if a person persists in refusing the help of others, it's not, it's not necessarily an honorable thing to do. It's not that they're on a, some sort of level that they do not require any help from anyone. It's actually not good to do so. All it's going to do is frustrate you. Right? We have, I'm sure we all know uh, the stubborn person who clearly they need assistance, or, but they, they're embarrassed or they are too proud to accept help from someone who can really help them. Therefore, the, the subsequent days of your illness, you indeed should speak to other people. So that his friends can provide for him that security in terms of um, material security and spiritual security. And when and now he he takes the side of the giver instead of the receiver. Up until now, we were talking about the person who needed the assistance, but he he then points out that. When the request for assistance is put forth in such a way that it is in its proper form, it's not overbearing, he goremet kishur nafshi le'agudata enoshi. It brings people together. I'm sure we've all seen uh, some tragedy occur in our lives that we've, we've been either a part of or we've witnessed, and we see that when people are crying out for help, and we see the overwhelming response of humanity to that, it brings an entire community closer. It brings people together because the very foundation of society is assisting each other and helping each other. When a person is is given the opportunity to assist someone in need, not when the person is is trying to be a leech off of them or when they're trying to take advantage of them, but when they really need help and someone is able to provide them with the assistance and the the help that they need, it brings people together. He says it, it makes the relationship between people and society greater than it was before. On the other hand, This is in contrast to 
someone who is asking for help, but they are just a lazy person or they really can assist themselves. When someone comes to you and says, I don't want to do this. I'm just lazy. Can you please do it for me? You don't feel, um, you don't feel as uh, connected to them as if they were really in need and you know that they tried what they could do and you're now here to be that shoulder to lean on, that societal element of their lives, which can bring you all together. You just view them as, well, this person needs to work on themselves to get themselves competent. He says in every situation, he ends off with a general statement, whatever situation you're in, you should have an intelligent restraint, and a straightness, a justness of the heart. So we just read the whole long paragraph, and we should take a step back and understand what exactly he's done for us here. The statement in the, in, the, in the Gemara was, if you fall ill, you do not immediately tell everybody around you. You wait a day, and then you do it. This could, be, this could have been taken in many different ways, in, in um, therapeutic ways, in superstitious ways, in psychological ways. And Rav Kook chose the psychological uh, aspect of it, and he views many of the uh, prescriptive ethical statements of the Chachamim as uh, tools for an individual to follow in order to view the world correctly and to be in touch with the rest of the world outside of themselves. And he says that when a, if a person will, so, so he's saying this is prescriptive advice. This is uh, a bit of self-therapy that you can do when you fall ill. If you want to make the best of a situation that you're in the middle of that's not so pleasant, you should follow this, this regime, this regimen of taking a step back from your illness and saying, I'm still a competent individual. I can still do plenty of things for myself. Society is there to help me when I fall flat on my face, but it's not time yet. And then, of course, to be humble enough to say, I'm not well enough on day two of your illness to, to then ask for, for help. So that is, that's a, a, a perush, a biur on a, an agada that is very characteristic of what Rav Kook does. And if we have more time, we can do a second example, if everybody would, uh, would like it. Or if there are any questions, I would love to take them. Continue, continue. Okay. On the same daf in the Gemara, there's another statement. This one is more directly having to do with dreams. As I was saying, this daf deals with dreams. The Gemara says, If a person wakes up from their nap or from in the morning, and they had a dream, and they have no idea what the dream meant, right? There's a discussion in the, in the Mepharshim, what it means he didn't know, did he forget, or does he just can't make heads or tails of it? I'm sure we've all had that experience. You know, you wake up and you say, what on earth was in my mind? I cannot, I don't know if it was good. I don't know if it was bad. I just have no idea. So there's a, a prescriptive statement of what you can do. You should stand up when the Kohanim are engaged in the Birkat Kohanim. And you should say a certain 
paragraph, Ribbono Shel Olam, and I didn't bring the whole thing here. The Rav Kook does explain the entire Ribbono Shel Olam, but I decided we're just going to go with the last last piece that uh, is here. Um, and this Ribbono Shel Olam is found in, in many Sidurim. I think it's found um, in standard Ashkenazi Sidurim. It's found in the Sidur of the Gra, and it's also found in the Sidur of the Yavetz. So it's brought down Lehalacha. And then the last part of your Olam, you shouldn't just say this as the Kohanim are, are blessing the Kahal. You should specifically You should try to finish the Olam at the same time that the Kohanim are finishing their blessing so that the Tzibur will be saying Amen to the Kohanim and you're kind of sneaking your uh, to get its own amen from, from the kahal. So it's a very strange thing. Why, why specifically do you need to finish for the tzibur to say amen to you? The tzibur doesn't know it's saying amen to you either. The tzibur, you're saying this to yourself. Um, so again, Rav Kook uh, makes this more about the, the internal side of things. What, what it does for you when the tzibur is saying amen at the same time that you're finishing your bracha. So he says, it is important to teach the following. A person should always make sure that when he is asking for a good in his life, that it should not be asked for unless it is it is harmonious with the good of the general sibu. right? You should never get rich off of making other people poor, uh, as in a, in a symbolic language. This idea about the, the greater good of the kahal is such an important one. It needs to be so deeply understood by every individual. Even when it comes to such things as your private thoughts, your hirurim, and your dreams, the person should not ask for any good if it is not with the approbation of the general klal. And then besides for the fact that it's going to make things uh, uh, be in a more righteous state of affairs, if there's going to be more peace, we know that tefillat rabim is more is, uh, is, uh, accepted. It's a, it's a famous statement in the Gemara. However you understand that statement, that's a discussion for a different time. Um, I'm sure of Cook would also explain that psychologically. You should make sure to finish with the Kohanim so that the Tzibur can say Amen to you. To teach you He's essentially saying you're making a statement. My desires about this dream that I had, that I said in the Ribbono Shel Olam, that everything should be uh, a, a good dream and that every and that everything I'm asking for and everything that I saw in my dream should turn out for the better. 
it should not turn out for the better in any way other than the way that the tzibur would also benefit from. You should never be the person who uh, is enriched at the expense of the klal, of the tzibur. And you should not ask the opposite of what is good for the tzibur, um, that which you would want. Rather, a person should attempt to live their life in a way that their success is the success of the tzibur as well. Right? This is another uh, motif in the thinking of Rav Kook. Um, it no doubt also has to do with uh, his views on Zionism, um, about establishing a, a living and breathing community of Jewish people in their land. Um, in, in such a way that it's not really possible in the exile. Um, he's always relating the individual to the klal and to the tzibur and to the general population and to the society um, in, in such ways that there's, a, there's an overarching harmony between, uh, between them. So these are two examples um, of his, his approach to explaining Agadot and we have uh, we have full volumes on both Masechet Brachot and Masechet Shabbat, in addition to certain uh, other tractates of the Mishnah, and uh, of course not in the Einaya itself, but scattered throughout his other writings. Uh, we also we also see this approach. Um, if you had to ask me, and I'm just an amateur, this is uh, very in line with the approach that we saw earlier. With the with the Andalusian Chachamim, with the Rambam and his son, and uh, with many other sources as well that reflect that. If you want more sources on that, you can go to the introduction of Rabbi Berdugo's edition of the uh, book that we put out, and he brings uh, many statements from the Geonim and Chachamim Svarad, who also uh, who also are are proponents of this of this view. Um, if there are any questions or if there is anything that was unclear, please. Uh, feel free to ask. Um, I'd love to try. Well, Avner, that was incredible. Very well presented. It's always uh, amazing to to see, to hear the uh, words of, of Cook. So his words are so beautiful. Um, if anyone has any questions, they can unmute, they can raise their hand, ask in the chat box. Comments, criticisms. I'll start off. Um, how does, does Rav Kook have sort of an approach of first trying to understand it literally? Um, if I'm not mistaken, I believe the Maharal, whenever he approaches Agadah, he first tries to see if there's a, if the literal meaning could be maintained. So, so is that an approach we also see in, uh, in Rav Kook? I would say that, uh, it doesn't seem so. There are certain times where he has no choice but to say that there's something literal going on here. Uh, for example, in the, very, in the very beginning of Masachet Brachot, we talk about the three mishmarot of the nighttime, right? They correspond to the, uh, to the sections of the night and to when you say Kirat Shema, and it's a whole complicated discussion. So he opens up that statement and he says, I would love to explain this in some sort of uh, metaphorical sense, but since it's applied hands-on, um, we're going to have to work with that. That's one area that he does it. 
That being said, I cannot say that it's a rule because I have I have seen uh, many many agadot that could certainly pass as um, whether it be a simple story or could be explained in somewhat a more simple manner than he does. Um, and but he takes the he takes his own route. Uh, so while you do find it, uh, I wouldn't say that it's uh, it's consistent. Anyone else? Because to add on, oh, Neil, yes. I'm interested in how, I mean, I really love your presentation. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in how it relates to the sorts of ideas I've come across outside Judaism within virtue ethics as a philosophy and within ideas of how we actually develop a just society it seems to me that you we're not emphasizing the individual thinking of themselves we're thinking of transcending the individual and thinking of the whole group aren't we and are we are we, are we trying to also develop people as virtuous people their their character rather than just um following rules or have i got it all wrong no, let, let me just clarify with you. Are you asking spe uh, specifically about one of the examples that we read or about? Yeah, this? I was, yeah, I was, yeah. I, I, yeah I, it was just coming across to me that the example was coming across that we're trying to make people develop their character, making them more virtuous and yes. thinking about. That, that's yeah. spot on. That, that is character development is a very, very big area of what he does. He essentially looks at a lot of, like I was saying before, Whenever there's a prescriptive statement, not a descriptive statement, in the yeah. in the Talmud about what a person should do in response to something, um, he immediately attempts to to make it about a person's character development, how they should view themselves in yeah. terms of something outside of themselves, whether that be yeah. another individual or the Torah or God or society. Um, it's about the interrelationships between the person who is following the prescription and the uh, the environment around them. So yes, you're absolutely right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyone else? Like to touch on the the earlier point, there is, for example, Masechet Kitin. They bring all of the the clinical. Uh, prescriptions that Chazal have. So, for example, like, uh, you know, they have, they have very clear, like, if you feel this, then do this. If you feel this, then do this. It seems, it seems to be that that is very literal. Right. So you're, you're talking about the medicinal things. Yeah. So unfortunately, Rav Kook did not manage to write a perush directly on, on Masachet Gitin in this way. I would, I would love to see if uh, someone was able to find it scattered throughout his writings, or if there perhaps are um, agadot that are referenced in both places, in Masechet Shabbat and in Gitin. Um, it would be very interesting to see what he does with that. Um, I know that the if he, if he were to psychologize it, um, he would be standing in contradistinction to, to Rabbeinu Avraham ben Rambam, who says that there are certain things such as the event kuma, which is uh, supposed to stop you from uh, miscarrying, which has never been proven. He says, we, we do not, there's no requirement that we uh, try to justify it in any way and to bend over backwards to understand it. It's just that the Chachamim were doing the best they could with the material that they had. And um, 
and uh, we're not really bound by that. Um, yeah. Now, you might want to go a, a level deeper and say, yes, they may have been mistaken, but why would such a practice develop in the first place? Maybe there's room to say that uh, these also developed as a symbolic, uh, a symbolic thing, but uh, that would be unclear. So we're, we're not really bound to, to follow those things or to believe them. And where can people access the, the Sefer? So they have a, an online, they have most of his book in uh, Wikitext format. Unfortunately, it is very ridden with uh, typos. It looks like someone did an OCR scan of his book and it wasn't so accurate. Um, it caused me a lot of pain when I was trying to, before I had, before I owned the actual set. Uh, the last time I was in Israel a year ago, I went and I purchased the, the actual books. They, they are releasing them in a new edition now. So uh, they, they've all come out and actually uh, your, your brother and my dear friend Asaf was uh, responsible for get, getting me that last volume. Um, so I think there, he, he also may have written on Masechet uh, Shvuot, but that has not come out in a, in a new edition just yet. I'm sure they're preparing it. It is available in a lot of bookstores in Israel um, but do not go to, counterintuitively, do not go to Mossad Arab Kuk to buy it. You have to go to the Machon of his son at the Merkaz Arab, Yeshivat Merkaz Arab, to buy the book, um, because that's where they put it out. Yes, um, it's accessible there. And if you have a, a subscription to Otsar Chuchma, you'll also find it on there. And of course, if anybody ever needs a specific thing, you can always just message me. I'll send you a picture. Just don't uh, put it out there publicly. Perfect. Okay. So I think with that, we're going to close. Avner, thank you so much for that incredible presentation. And uh, thank you so much, everyone, for showing up. Uh, stay tuned for our next shiurim. And uh, make sure to, to send in your questions before Friday so that uh, Rabbi Dua can, can answer them on Monday. And uh, Lila Tov, everyone, thank you so much. Thank you, everyone. Thanks.